It isn't even Halloween, and Christmas decorations are already popping up at every retailer in America. As a Christian, this is often too early, but imagine how this wholehearted embracing and commercialization of a religious holiday impacts people of other faiths. Folks who have to go to school, shop, dine, and live in a holiday season that is constantly reminding them that they do not belong. But that's just the beginning. Historians and theologians alike cite Christian missionaries who worked to spread the new and what was seen at the time as a traditionless faith across Europe. These missionaries were fascinated by the pagan traditions and beliefs, which they adapted to create many of the warm and cozy traditions we now associate with Christmas, and thus making it a more fun and palatable religion to those they were trying to convert. Beyond being rooted in pagan winter solstice celebrations, many struggle with Christmas as a Euro-centered, forced celebration grounded in capitalism and the prosperity gospel. It doesn't help that Christmas customs like caroling, Santa Claus, gift-giving, and even feasts are all aspects of winter solstice celebrations from groups like the North, the Romans, and a worldview that was built on oppression and suppression. We're joined today by Dr. Zachary Ritter. Zach received his PhD in higher education from the University of California, Los Angeles, focusing on Asian international studies, cross-racial interactions. He is currently vice president of leadership development at the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. Additionally, he was associate dean of students at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and teaches at various campuses, a course called The Revolution Might Be Televised, Social Justice History Through Music and Movies. He is a diversity and inclusion educator for Staten Consulting Group and recently co-edited a book entitled Whiteness, Power, and Resistance to Change in Higher Education. Zach, welcome. You ready to get uncomfortable, man? Let's do it. Let's do it. So, you know, the theme of this, you know, having grown up in a, I grew up in a city, one of the only cities, shout out to St. Louis Park, Minnesota, one of the only cities in the country where Jewish people could own property at the time. So our high school is like two thirds, half Jewish at times. And so I always struggled in, under, in understanding how Jewish folks dealt with and people of other faiths dealt with Christmas. And we're dealing with this huge idea that there's a war on Christmas too, right? So talk a little bit about your childhood as a Jewish kid, right? What were you taught about Christmas? How has that perspective remained and evolved over time? Yeah, so thanks for having me on the show. I was thinking a lot about this episode for a hot minute because, well, firstly, I don't want to speak for all Jewish people, right? I'm just one guy with a lot of opinions. But with that said, I think Christmas in my house was not only non-existent, but was something to be kept out. And it was seen as a threat and a danger to our Jewish identity. My father, who was a refugee uh, from Germany, born in the displaced persons camps uh, in the American zone in 1947 after the war, and his parents were in Auschwitz. And so there was a lot of Holocaust trauma. And even the word Holocaust you know, comes from burnt offering to God, 
which is problematic and, and has its roots in like Greek stuff, but also Christian stuff of all these people had to die as a burnt offering or a scapegoat or sacrifice to the God. So, so Jewish people call it the Shoah, which is like the tragedy. So I think how it was brought up is don't become a Christian because there was a lot of forced conversion the last 2000 years of Jewish people in Europe. Uh, you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but also kicked out all the Muslims and the Jews and started this whole wild genocidal campaign to um, convert the whole world to Christianity. And he did a pretty good job because now we got 2.2 billion Christians in the world and there's 15 million Jews in the world. So I think there's always this threat of destruction or annihilation of Jews by the philosophy of Christianity uh, historically, but also by even just conceding and celebrating and this holiday and getting subsumed into the larger Christian culture that is America. And yeah, I guess my parents were also teased and beat up by like Christian kids growing up in, in, in Chicago and um, outside of Chicago and Illinois. So there was like a lot of bad feeling around Christmas, which honestly, I think I'm still trying to unlearn and unpack because it's probably not healthy. <laughs> well, and it, it's healthy to know where it comes from, right? True, and, true. and the trauma is not you, right? The trauma is the things and the actions. I mean, the bottom line is, as a theologian, I know that Christian missionaries were trying to peddle what was seen as a boring religion. When you're competing with, God help us, how folks tried to convert African slaves and how folks how tried to convert natives in our country. And just thinking about what happened in Europe and you're competing with the Norse and you're competing with Roman face, right? Hmm. And so all of the pagan traditions and Christmas, obviously, we just have to have some celebrations. We have to have some fun. This just can't be about suffering, right? <laughs> and so then we create these things and we take on things and we make things that are grounded in traditions that the people at the time, right, in Europe um, were doing, whether it's giving gifts, whether it's kissing under the mistletoe, whether it's a Christmas tree. We take all of these pieces and we wrap them up and then we call it the mass of Christ because maybe the mass of Christ with all the other, without all the other stuff would be boring, hmm. maybe. Hmm. And so we create these other things. That, and I would say that if I was, and even as a Christian, right, as a father and grandfather, I worry that the drug that is all the stuff around Christmas hmm. distracts from the human that Christ was. I mean, we should be celebrating not only the God he is, but the human he was. Mm. And the human he was would never be down with what Christmas is. Mm. And so I would say, you know, don't tell this to family, but I would say they're right. <laughs> I mean, that old sexy, shiny ball that is Christmas can really draw people in to forget about and almost intentionally forget about the nature of who that Jewish Nazarite 
long-haired, burly carpenter was for 30 years on this planet and three years of a ministry. So I would say yes and amen to your parents. I think some of the pieces that it seems like, and you tell me this if, if, if I'm wrong, it seems like as you're describing it, is there kind of a feeling around there, especially as an, as an educator, as a scholar, as a social justice advocate? It, how do those layers play out with you? I think there is, for any ethnic, racial group or, or a different type of faith group that, that comes to America, there is a fear of assimilation. And there is a fear that your culture is going to die out and you are going to become a Christian American. Um, and I've been watching a lot of Mo, you know, Mohammed Amr, the Palestinian American comedian who has a great show on Netflix called Mo, uh, which hits on this theme of how do you balance your Muslim Palestinian identity, but also be in a multiracial, multicultural America. And the same thing with Rami. Uh, which is also a brilliant show, which is tackling similar themes of, of how do we not lose ourselves. Um, and even Atlanta, right? Childish Gambino, Donald Glover, he's like looking at how do we not uh, become a white American, white Christian American. And so there's this fear of assimilation. Okay. Also, I think there is a fear the Catholics in Europe tried to kill my family and were successful at killing a lot of my family. And so I, I like growing up, I didn't know what a cousin was because I didn't have them um, really. And linking Christianity and Christmas with death of my family was cemented from a young age. And so there was obviously some animosity that I had towards this um, religion and also some fear of practicing it or, or, or dating someone who was involved with it or driving down the street and seeing all these Christian symbols because we live in a very Christian society. And going beyond some of these symbols, um, for example, I remember growing up and like everyone, everybody wanted to have like a Christmas tree. But like you said in the beginning, that's actually from Yuletide, right? That goes back way back to like, after Yuletide, it was Saturnalius because you pray to Saturn and you bring something alive during the dead of winter into your house, which is an evergreen because during Yule, everything's dead, but you want to like hang on to life during the winters in Europe. And so Yuletide then becomes Saturnalius and then Constantine changes up the game in what, like 321. And then everybody becomes Christian in, in, in the Roman Empire and then so on and so forth. Uh, so I think I saw the Christmas tree and I was like, oh no, the, I don't think they know what's underneath that. Just like to your point, this, you know, Palestinian Jewish dark-skinned guy who turned supposedly water into wine, you know, they turned him into like from a socialist hippie into like a mean corporatist. So I just was like, man, is this Christianity about, uh, you know, Yeshua Christ or whoever this guy was who was, you know, a Jewish guy trying to shake up the Roman Empire and trying to share and teach people that, you know, care for sex workers, care for people with leprosy, care for all these people that are really down on their luck? Or did he become a tool for 
imperial takeover of like India and like lots of parts of Africa and lots of parts of Latin America for the gain of a small select few Europeans. You are, you know, that's why you're my brother. Cause like mm-hmm. that is, you know, I studied to be a pastor and have a theology degree, not just from a Lutheran school, like Missouri Senate Lutheran. I mean, it's conservative black, you know, I was literal black sheep because I was, you know, but I always knew not only who Christ <laughs> was as a man, but who Luther was, right? I mean, Luther was a bad boy. I mean, when you start translating scripture into the people's language and they try to kill you for it because you want the people to say, to, to read what God is saying to them, it totally flips the game, right? And Luther's the first to come up with these ideas like justification by grace through faith. Like, I can't believe in Christ, but come to him, but but through the Holy Spirit. Like, it isn't about me. It's never about me, right? And what Christmas does is make it be all about you. What you get, what you open, how you feel, what you drink, what you feast, how your house looks. It's almost like this entitlement. So I, you know. As, as the Christian in the space, I would say you are 100% accurate. I mean, when, when folks went to convert the slaves and they went to convert the natives, they couldn't convert the adults. And when they tried, religions like voodoo, who are a mix of Christianity and ancient African religions joined, right? And so people then started creating boarding schools and Bible schools to indoctrinate children. And what better way than a fat man with a beard and gifts and cookies and candy to get kids to think, and hey, come to me, come to me. And so if I'm your parents, I'm saying the same thing. Because I try to keep my grandkids and my own kids. Yes, we want to celebrate the season, but we also want to celebrate the man and the person. And as you said, the table tipping, foot washing socialist that that carpenter from Nazareth was and what he would want us to be, right? Would he want us to be the prosperity gospel if we just pray and do everything right? Hey. We're we're gonna get stuff. And it's about who we exclude and who we indict, whether you're queer, whether you're a woman making your own choices for your own body, you know, there has been more murders and harm in the name of that man that is completely contrary to the human being he was and the message he is. So Christmas is a big, shiny object. And if I had some Jewish babies, I would tell them, look the other way. This thing is a joke. Do not go over there. And that stuff that they're celebrating has nothing to do with that guy. Quick story. I was working at an institution in the Deep South, and I'm a super Christmas guy. Like my house, I already, I have a, I pay a guy to put lights on my house, right? I'm not climbing on the roof. I am Clark Griswold. And so I'm working in the Deep South, and all of a sudden after Thanksgiving, the campus becomes a Christmas card. Like the president's mansion is decorated with evergreens and bows, and in front of the administration building, there's a huge Christmas tree, and there's glad tidings everywhere. We are at a public institution in the Deep South. 
my first reaction was, oh man, this is pretty. This is great. And then I started thinking about my students, my students who this is, I just work there. This is their home. My students who don't celebrate Christmas, my students who now we say on campuses, right, Zach, you got belonging, belonging, belonging. But then we are telling all of our Jewish students, Muslim students, a lot of our students who are Mormons, our students who are Jehovah Witnesses, our students who are any other faith, that no, you don't belong here. And not only do you not belong here, we're going to use your money to buy other things to put up to tell you you don't freaking belong here. Completely crazy. So I go back to my space and my team says, we're going to put up stuff for the holidays. I said, no. Well, can't we put stuff up to represent everybody? No. This is their home, right? And then I had staff argue with me that Christmas wasn't a religious holiday. And I said, well, I, I know the roots of Christmas are not a religious holiday, but it still has Christ in it. <laughs> so I, I, we can't have our students not feel a part of. So you also, right, have a deep, 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 experience and broad in the higher ed space. Talk about those spaces around belonging and how Euro-Christian activities like Christmas can often be perceived at, from our students when we're saying you belong in another sense, we're saying you can't participate. So, Okay, I want to get into that, but you brought up some really, really powerful stuff. So let me get there first. Number one, yeah, Martin Luther, powerful dude, and like took the word and brought it right to the people and said, "You don't need the Catholic Church to, to, to pray to God, right? Just do it at home." Um, and again, the way I was taught in my household about Martin Luther is, I guess he said some like really bad anti-Jewish stuff, right? He's like, "Set fire to their synagogues and their schools." Uh, and they should be raised and destroyed in their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught uh, should be taken from them, right? And the rabbis should be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. Like he was, he was, he was, on, some, he was on one about Jewish folks and he wasn't alone, right? It, it, it's unfortunate that someone who can, and we see this today as well to, towards other groups, right? Someone who is a liberator for one group then it's like, yeah, but I, I hate black people though. Yeah, but, but I hate uh, queer folks. You know, I, I hate immigrant folks. If we're going to be liberators for one folks, can't we be liberators for all humanity? And that, and that really, really bugs me. That gets me. And so there's, I just had to say that one thing about Martin Luther. Bro, and you are so, you're, let me just say, you're, because we as humans have to be pointing the finger at somebody to get behind someone else. Right. The only way I'm going to rally behind X is if that person is excluding someone. The messages of love and inclusion, those aren't often embraced until people die. We were talking a little bit mm -hmm. about the higher ed space and this this idea of belonging. But at the same time, we really, really struggle of creating even in a place like California, right? We struggle with creating safe places and spaces for students of other faiths or other um, religions or other backgrounds and races. Talk a little bit about that in particular around as we walk our way into this time of year. 
the college space is a microcosm for our society. And I think something unique, special, and different about the college spaces is it's socially engineered. Actually, society is too. But for the purpose of this argument, um, college spaces are socially engineered because you pick the best and the brightest uh, or the people that could jump through all the hoops through high school, blah, 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 got all these grades, and you put them in one place and you say, have at it. So you have very strong opinions of very smart people and a lot of the campuses I've been on, it's like seen as progress that there we reserved one room so Muslim students can go pray there if you guys want. And and it seems strange, right? Because it's 2022 that uh, Muslim folks just started to exist, uh, which is great. And so we gave you a room. But we got, like you were saying, we got all these... Uh, uh, Christmas decorations. I've been on campuses where there's a big church in the middle of the campus with a cross and everything and, you know, pictures of Jesus and stuff. But yet we are a secular country and we separate church and, and state, uh, which we know has been very, very difficult for us uh, in our 250 plus year history. So on the college campus, you know, and I should say, I guess, as, as the Jewish guy, right? I think... Jewish students get a lot of criticism sometimes because it's like, yeah, but you guys have this whole building called Hillel that's like slightly off campus, but it gets all these like goodies and so so on and so forth. So why are you guys complaining about um, Christmas when you got your Hillel building? We won't even touch the issue about Israel-Palestine because that becomes a whole uh, uh, hotbed uh, of controversy on college campuses. But I still think there's this unspoken dominant narrative of Christianity on college campuses that we don't often examine. I was a residential hall RA at UCLA. And I remember when Christmas time came around, it was the way that we dealt with it was like, okay, we're going to elevate all the ones that we know. Uh, So we're going (laughs) to elevate Kwanzaa, uh, which yeah, as we were talking before, it's interesting and and problematic at the same time. We're going to elevate Hanukkah and we're going to elevate Christmas and we're going to put them all on this like equal playing field, which I think we try to do with a lot of things in America to try to be like, like, don't look at the history. Um, And I guess it kind of worked, at least for our little floor, because people felt like they were being represented or that they learned about a different culture. But it's, interesting that people were a bit uncomfortable centering Jesus in Christmas stuff. And I think that's our schizophrenic nature in America where it's like, we're okay with corporate capitalist money-making stuff, but let's not talk about the God stuff because we are born out of getting out of a lot of theocracies in Europe that we Focus on the thing that everybody can do. Everybody can buy something at the supermarket if you can afford it. Everyone could have a tree. And I think the conservative stuff, especially on college campuses, but in America as well, and Donald Trump said it on stage, they're trying to take our God's gun and oil, which is very simplistic. But this concern on college campuses and elsewhere that we're taking away Christmas comes into play because 
we've realized there's other people that exist in America and that they also have a voice and we need to make room for them to exist. Um, and there's just like a lot of things that people live in ignorant bliss about. Uh, and so for example, I dated someone who was Catholic and they had never heard of Vatican II, that in the 1960s, the Catholic church officially apologized for 2000 years of saying that the Jews killed Jesus. And that's allowed for 2000 years for Christians and Catholics in Europe to then kill Jews. I think there's a lot of things that we remain uh, ignorantly blissful about on purpose, because if we knew about them, it would cause um, massive unrest and disruption. But on the other side of that, we might have a healthier, happier country. And I think that's the growing pains that we're going through right now. And it reminds me of James Baldwin's quote, you know, to, to be a black person in America is to be in a constant state of rage, because there's so much that comes with that identity. And also his quote about, I understand why people cling so much to their hate, because once hate goes away, they have to deal with pain. And I think a lot of people don't want to deal with pain. And so they're like, keep that Christmas tree there. You better say Merry Christmas to me. And I don't really want to hear about your other types of cultures and religions. People. Well, and let's just say Charlemagne wasn't doing that because he was so zealous in the spirit. He didn't get the Holy Ghost and kill people, right? It was about power. It was about control. It was about oppression. When I think that, Zach, I think the challenge with all of this is this continued hypocrisy, right? Just like you were talking about with Constantine. Constantine didn't I think sometimes people, I worked at a camp and we used to play this game, Romans versus Christians. And the Romans were the um, counselors and the Christians were the kids. And it was a big game of capture the flag, right? And it was this glorifying of the things, right? And there were parts of the early church before it was even a church, before it was just a band of people fighting the power, right? That was all about the zeal, about the faith, right? And I, and I want to convert people because I want people to know Jesus, right? Okay, that's, that's the purest form of the thing. But the reality is Jesus knows them regardless, right? It doesn't matter if you know Jesus. Jesus knows them. And Jesus is good. And you could be a thief on the cross hanging there. And he says, homie, don't worry about it. I got you. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And it doesn't matter. And so the whole Constantine idea and thinking that Constantine was trying to convert and trying to do all this stuff, that wasn't done for any reason but power, money, control, and oppression. The same things that we do today, right? We have, we have, we have a whole group of people who we stole their land in the name of Christ. We have a whole group of people who we stole them and treated them like chattel because we said, this says curse be Canaan and every and Canaan's going to be owned by Canaan's people. Now, just for everybody out there, every first off, Noah can't curse anybody. He ain't God. First and foremost, it's just Noah. Want, first and foremost. Second, 
Okay. Everyone he was talking to was black. Every one of his son's names origin is black, blackened, all of these different things. So that is not a route for slavery, nor is any of it a thing because Noah didn't even know he was going to get drunk because it's the first case of drunkenness in scripture. Zach, yes? Okay. I'm just talking to, to a Jew and a Christian, right? And so he drank some old stuff and it was fermented and he got drunk and he didn't even know it. And his, and his sons laughed at him is basically what happened. And he was pissed. He said, how dare you laugh at me? And he basically said, I curse you, you samama, which is what parents would do if you're laughing at your dad. Wasn't a thing. So that's a a theological diatribe there. But the piece with the United States is we do the same thing, right? We, we, we say we're a Christian. We say that we're pro-life. But you know what? I'm pro-dictating your life. I'm not pro-you dictating mine. I'm not only going to get in your womb. I'm going to get in your bed, in your bedroom, in your faith life. And doggone it, you better not tell me I can't have an AR-15 and a snake on the back of my car that says, don't tread on my rights, but I'm going to tread on every single piece of yours. The one thing I know is I know that carpenter who died for the people at the age of 33, who died for all people, he wouldn't be down with any of that. So it continues, Zach. So what do we do? We're approaching this time of year. You're a justice guy. You're also a faith guy. And you're a faith guy that I admire because you're not, hey, I don't have room for Palestinians. I don't have room for Muslims. I don't have room for Christians. You are a room maker, first and foremost, in your own heart, your own faith walk. How do we all do that? Talk about that a little bit. There's a book that is not in the canon in Jewish scripture. Ethiopian Jews do read this book of Jubilee, but the book of Jubilee is not in, I don't know, the Western canonized Jewish uh, Nevi'im and Ketuvim. And the book of Jubilee, Jubilee comes from Yubel, which means to blow the shofar. And every seven years is a Shemitah year. And a Shemitah year means you let the land lie fallow. You don't plant. And you free your enslaved peoples. Jews used to enslave Jews. And then they let them go every seven years. So it was different, a little bit different than... than um, <laughs> you and your family are enslaved for the next 500 years until we have a civil war and we stop this. And then maybe it continues in different forms. I think something that I would be interested in exploring as, uh, you know, as a city, as a country, as whatever, how do we look at the book of Jubilee, which also says basically give away all your money every seven years, something like that. How do we stop centering our own religions and say, ours is the best, everyone else sucks. Or ours is the best, eh, I'm going to tolerate these other guys, whatever. How do we look at history and not just say, oh my gosh, it's so much war, genocide and killing, isn't that terrible? 
Eat up. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. What happens if we, on Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever things you like to celebrate, Kwanzaa, um, that we are trying to repair and uplift other groups that have been stepped on. When I was little, my family used to take me a lot to Arizona. And they used to take me to Native American reservations, Navajo, Diné, Zuni, Hopi. And I was a young, impressionable kid. I didn't know better. And so I thought I was Native American. And so I asked my parents, in all honesty, what tribe are we from? And they were confused. And they were like, oh, okay, yeah. So we're not from that, from those tribes, but we're from like one of the you know, 12 lost tribes. And they kind of made it a little bit of a joke. And I was, I was deeply disappointed because I thought that Jewish culture and my culture had no culture. I didn't know much about Eastern Europe. I didn't know much about the 12 lost tribes, but I knew that I was seeing uh, Kachina dolls, uh, Hopi, Zuni, Diné culture, and it was rich. And they had all these beautiful um, artistry and, and, and different gods and it, and it spoke to me in an interesting way as a, as a child, all the different colors and all the different, um, you know, thought, ways of thought that they were talking about and all different creation stories. Even as a young kid, I was like, wait, why is none of this elevated? Why is it always Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa? There's all these other religions, ways of being, philosophies, knowledge that have been killed and stepped on, but we have an opportunity to repair. We have an opportunity to uplift voices and new narratives that may help us create a new dance and live in a more healthy, happier, interesting way. And so I talked to my Jewish brothers and sisters and non-binary folks. I talked to my Catholic Jewish brothers and sisters and non-binary folks. And I say, when you're taking down that statue of Nipro Sarah, which I hope you do, my local Catholic church did not, okay, can we use some of the money that we have in our various communities to try to do some type of small-scale black reparations in our city, in our community? Can we do like Chicago did and do $25,000 housing vouchers, you know, if you can prove that you were discriminated in the 60s? Uh, if you discriminated yesterday, is there a way that in California, one of my former students just did this, and I'm really, really excited about the work that he is doing. Uh, his name is Ian, uh, and and he has a, a, a conservancy called the Tongva Conservancy. He is not Tongva himself, but he has studied history, and he said, as a Jewish American guy, this is what I think is right, and he was instrumental in helping uh, Sharon Dreyfus, uh, who is a, a Jewish American woman, transfer one acre of land to uh, Tongva Native American folks in Los Angeles. And it's the first time that Tongva folks have ever owned land in the last 200 years since the Spaniards had been here. That is history in action. That is justice, faith, love, whatever you want to call it, in action. It's not too late, right? There's 
about maybe 3,000 Tongva folks still left in Los Angeles. You know, my people always talk about there's 15 million of us only in the world, and that's true, and there's work that needs to be done. And yet there's other groups that have even less numbers than us. So how are we as Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, you know, Wiccan folks, you know, what all these different faiths, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses who also died with us in the concentration camps because they wouldn't swear allegiance to Hitler, Jehovah's Witnesses. How do we all come together and say, there are people that are really, really suffering in our city that are unhoused. There are people that are indigenous and black and brown that are suffering more than us. Jesus, Moses, Muhammad, peace be upon him. They are instructing us to give what we have so that we create a better society for everybody, not to erect a higher statue or a higher tree and say, this is my land and F all of you. That's not, that's not, what, that's not the love way. That's not the agape way. That's not what we're trying to get at. The whole thing is, I just went to South Africa, right? And I was learning about different African cultures. Uh, Ubuntu, right? I am because you are. And this is what influenced Gandhi and influenced uh, MLK. We are all tied in this intrinsic fabric uh, on this spinning rock through, through the universe. And we've only got one planet. And we got to get our S-H-I-T together because you could build the biggest Christmas tree, but if you don't have a planet to do it on, then we're all really screwed. So, so my answer to folks are like, well, what do I do? You know, I don't want to feel about feel uncomfortable about being a Christian or being a Jew or do, 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 do. The whole point of uncovering honest history and looking back at the genocide and all these things that happen, it's instructive, even if you're an atheist, right? Some of my atheist brothers and sisters and non-binary folks are more wokish to some of this stuff because they're not bound by these books. They say, this is what I see wrong with society right now. We need to give more money. We need to change our policies. We need to elect better politicians. We need to change the way we raise our, our, our children in order to create a future that the planet survives and that people have housing, healthcare, and education and all the things that they need to feel healthy, happy, and secure. And even if you don't believe in any religion, those are the tenets that I think we as humans, even Eleanor Roosevelt wrote out in 48, you know, the Declaration of Human Rights that we still can't stick to. There are basic things that all humans could utilize and have a good life from. And I think we need to start thinking in a more global way of care, love, and respect. Zach, you're the guy. I mean, I think that the thing about that you're saying, a, a lot of it is really striking. But there was a point that I was talking with my 77-year-old mother. And she said, I said, you know, mom, there's these certain people that have these views that are in our family that are related <laughs> to me. I just can't rock with them. So what do you mean? They're our family. You, they're our family. I said, well, I, I know they're our family. But I've known them my whole life. And if there is something more powerful at work, right? As a person of faith, I know that there is something more powerful on a negative side than me. Lucifer is 
the deceiver, right? That's the point. And so when I see people who I've known my whole life have these crazy outlandish views, I'm like, look, if it ain't of God, it's of something. Okay. I can't rock with that because I am not stronger than Lucifer. Okay. I'm just going to tell you I'm not. I'm not going to do those things. And so those are the kind of things as you're talking, Zach, I think people want to know, okay, what do I do? What do I do? But it starts with you, but that's too much. Well, I just need to write a check. I need, no, it starts with you. If, if this wasn't a thing, the devil wouldn't be working so hard, but you brought up some things that are challenging and uncomfortable. The more we make space, having uncomfortable mm. conversations, not just with each other, but with ourselves, mm. acknowledging, like you said, acknowledging the history and understanding the history mm-hmm. so that it doesn't repeat, right? There's a reason why people are using mm. letters like CRT to describe teaching kids that Christopher mm-hmm. Columbus didn't start mm-hmm. anything. He was a murderer and a rapist and a genocider, right? Is because... Mm-hmm. If you start teaching kids, just like Christmas, right? You start teaching people Mm -hmm. the right stuff, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. God wins. Allah wins. Jehovah wins. Mm -hmm. That's what this time of year is all about. Zach, thank you so much, brother. You know I love you, right? I I love you too. I love you too. I appreciate you taking the time, being here with us today. Um, It wasn't uncomfortable. You don't get uncomfortable. So this wasn't an uncomfortable space for you. I mean, I've I've been uncomfortable uh, a lot in my life, and maybe that's why I opened up my brain a little bit. Um, but I, I think being uncomfortable is the start. It causes some cognitive dissonance. And if anyone is listening to this, which I hope they are, other than you, Mom, appreciate you, love you. Um, you know, I I think if you hear this stuff, you know, uh, Adam and Zach, oh, smart guys, but what do they really want me to do? Everybody has a role in this evolution revolution of humanity. If you want to just write a check, God bless you. If you want to put a sticker on your car and go to a protest, God bless you. If you're going to vote in a, in a pro-humanity, like, healthy way, God bless you. There are so many things that we can do that I think are, are whatever, media tells us, oh, you don't have any control over that. If more people wrote checks towards, you know, black liberation, towards uh, indigenous freedom, right? Towards um, restoring trees and land. If more people voted a certain way, if more people uh, 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 used their voice in their workplace to change policies, to hire more black and brown folks, more poor white folks, more queer folks, if we changed businesses to not be so... Only money for the shareholders, no, no money for you know regular folks or or Amazon unionizing. Jesus Christ Himself would be on the front lines with Chris Smalls, right? For uh, Christian Smalls for uh, creating the Amazon unions. Um, if more people used their white privilege, their able-bodied privilege, their American privilege to change some of the things that would be more pro respect, health, happy things, we would have a different world. Well, and I think the interesting thing that you're bringing up, which is so true, 
is a friend of mine sits, I love him, but he's, he's an MSNBC watcher. And he doesn't just turn into Joy and Rachel Maddow mm. because I get it. I, I listen to Joy, okay? I'm going to listen to Joy now. <laughs> Joy going to get a heat. And Rachel Maddow's going to take you to school like a professor. So I'm going to do that. But he listens to all of it every, I mean, every hour. And he says, it's the news. And I'm like, bro, it's not healthy. And I said to him, he said, but the world is jacked up. I said, the United States is not the freaking world. We are a two-year-old compared to the world. We are not the world. That's the hope. We are a 250-year-old experiment that's a baby that's built on a lot of untruths. That if all we do is brace ourselves to walk, we don't want to be, you know, Baldwin, right? We talk a lot about Baldwin where he says, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. We don't want the fire, right? Every other country on this in, in the world has had to walk through fire. Some of them have not survived. That is... It's it's the naivete and the nationalist mindset of many of us in the United States where we think we are the world and we are exempt from the fire. In, in, in Hebrew, we say sadiq, which means being a righteous person, which in Arabic is like Raphael sadiq, right? Um, righteousness. Then Jesus is going to come back and it's all going to be good and there's going to be a day of judgment and the, and the bad ones go over here and the good ones get ascended and that's it. In Judaism, it's interesting because the end goal um, is we're still waiting. We're still waiting for the Mashiach or the Messiah. And, you know, we don't believe that Jesus was the one. Um, and I personally don't like the notion of waiting for one guy or gal. I think it's more interesting, and, and, and the Kabbalists kind of do a spin on this in Kabbalah, where they say... We're not waiting for one person to come and save us. We are waiting. The Messiah is an era of good feeling. It is an era where people are treating each other in a humane, just, and righteous way. This is what we are trying to get to, I think, as progressives, as humanists, as people of goodwill. We are trying to get to a place where everybody has, you know, the, the, the health, happiness, and the pursuit of whatever they want to pursue. And that could be the messianic age. And I still think we're waiting to get there. And there's a bunch of different ways that we can usher in that era where we're all treating each other in a, in a beautiful and godly way. And like we were saying earlier, everybody has a role in that evolution revolution of creating this messianic age where no matter what faith or non-faith you're from, that you have a place on this earth where you can feel loved, welcomed, and respected. And I think if we're talking about Jesus, that's what he was trying to get to. He wasn't trying to say, in a thousand years, y'all are still going to be talking about me, and y'all got to kill all of each other and make, <laughs> make each other believe in me so that I'm going to eventually come back. That's not what he was trying to say, right? Nothing was really written about Jesus until 200 years after his death. And so the idea of Jesus is interpreted in many different ways. But I wish, I wish, if people want to be down with Jesus, they want to really embrace stuff that Jesus is saying, let's go with the one that is about love, respect, and bringing in a messianic age that we don't need 
some extraterrestrial force to come down and make us be good. We can love on each other and create a society that works for everybody without some, you know, mystical, mythical character coming back and making us and forcing us into submission. We can, we can do it on our own. Zach, you're the man. Again, you know, I love you, right? Love you Thank too. Thank you for being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Happy holidays, bro. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Get Uncomfortable, the podcast with Adam A. Smith. This podcast is produced in partnership between Adam A. Smith and Rachel Hansen. Links to everything mentioned in the episode today, as well as Rachel and Adam's contact information, will be included in the show notes.